You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Jared Santo and Gerhard Lazou. They're the dynamic duo responsible for developing and deploying changelog.com, which is a news and podcast platform for developers that happens to be built with Phoenix and Elixir. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Nick. We're excited. Thank you, Nick. I've been waiting for this for nine months, and I do not exaggerate. <laughs> it's been a long time coming. Yeah, very happy to have you guys on. So, Jared, do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about changelog.com? You bet. Yeah, my name is Jared Santa, like you said, managing editor of changelog.com. Adam Sokoviak's my partner in crime over there. And uh, we've been doing news and podcasts for developers for a very long time. The Changelog, which people may have heard of, maybe not, is a uh, interview show. We interview the hackers, leaders, and innovators in the software world. And we've been doing that for over a decade now. Uh, a few years back, we expanded to a small portfolio of shows. So we have a show about Go. It's called Go Time. We have a show about JavaScript and the web. It's called JS Party. We have a show about machine learning and whatnot called Practical AI. We have a show about the brain called Brain Science. We have a show with founders and CEOs called Founders Talk. I believe that's all our shows, but I routinely leave one out, so maybe there's one more missing. And then we also track the news, so what's interesting, what's going on. We started off in the open source world and have kind of branched out into software writ large. But, you know, it's tools, it's cool stuff, it's great articles, and uh, we help people keep up because things move really fast. And my name is Gerhard. Um, I've joined Jared and Adam some years ago when Jared was asking, hey, there's this tool called Deliver. There's eDeliver, which is a fork for deploying Elixir applications and it has your name on it. So can you help us out deploying Phoenix? This was 2016. Mm. And since then, everything changed multiple times. So I really like infrastructure and I'm really into uh, the development process, how to get things out there, how to operate them in production uh, when there is some downtime, how to manage that, how to learn from that. And we've been doing every year we have been improving the changelog infrastructure to the point that I, I personally am really proud of it. I'm really happy with how it works. Every year it gets better. And next year it's just going to be even more amazing. So that story, that journey that we've been on is so exciting. Yeah, it's awesome. And from someone like me, who's like a developer who also likes apps, like I really appreciate those roundup posts that you make going over like the really gory details about, you know, every step of the way. So we can see like how it progressed from version one to current day. Yeah, we're glad you enjoy those because we enjoy writing them. And we also do an annual podcast that kind of goes into the details of the decision making, just trying to be as open and as helpful as possible with what we're doing, the decisions that we're making so that other people can not just make the same decisions because, of course, everyone's circumstances are slightly different, but have the insight of to why we chose the things that we chose to help them make decisions on the, the choices they're going to make. Yeah, that's uh, definitely very, very well put. So when it came to building the platform itself, did you start with Phoenix and Elixir or did you transition from something else? So we transitioned, like I said, the changelog is over a decade old. And so the platforms have been many and numerous. Phoenix was the first one that we built for ourselves. It actually started on Tumblr back before I was part of the, the gig. I was a merely a enthusiastic listener and a follower of the blog because as an indie developer in Omaha, Nebraska, I felt very isolated and I felt like I was going to fall behind. And I loved how the changelog kept me up with like 
what's going on in the space that's interesting. And uh, at a certain point, it started to fade out a little bit. In fact, we did a very deep dive history on the Free Code Camp podcast. So I won't go into the full history right now, but there's like a three hour podcast about the Changelog's history that uh, Quincy Larson did with us last year. So listeners who are interested in that history can, can go there. But the platform history was Tumblr originally, and then moved to WordPress after that. And during that time, we joined 5x5, which is a podcast network. And we were publishing to two places at that point. So we published to WordPress on changelog.com, and then we would cross-post to 5x5's network, which was their own custom CMS. Um, that was all just with the Changelog podcast. And when we decided we wanted to do some more podcasts, because we didn't want to fill the main feed with like our experiments and different things, but we wanted to serve more our audiences and really dive into other things that we're interested in, we decided to build our own platform at that point. So that was in the 2015, 2016 timeframe. And I'm a web developer and we were bumping up against WordPress, not because it's not great, because it is great. It just, there are things that you want to do. And some of those things are easy with an off the shelf open source platform. And some of those things are hard. And when you hit the hard parts, you kind of want to smooth those things out. I did not enjoy writing PHP and WordPress plugins. And since it was very much for me, at least a side gig at the time, I'm full-time on ChangeLog now, but back then I was a contract, you know, freelance software developer helping out on the ChangeLog on the side. It needed to be something that I would enjoy doing or the things would never get done. And so we didn't want to just keep hacking WordPress to fit our needs. And we knew we were going multi-tenant, not in terms of other people on our platform, but multiple podcasts on one platform. So that's when we decided let's build our own thing. And that's when I picked up Phoenix and Elixir. Okay. So when it came to that decision of picking Phoenix, was that something you made by yourself or did Gerhard, did you pop in there and was like, Hey, by the way, Phoenix and Elixir, very cool. Let's do it up. This was pre Gerhard. So I, I reached out to Gerhard when I was ready to deploy and he's been along for the ride ever since. But yeah, I made the call on Phoenix and Elixir. It's kind of the result of doing a podcast where every week you're featuring a new person slash technology and you get really excited about it. And it's kind of an ongoing theme with the changelog where after each show, I'm like, Adam, this was amazing. I'm going to go try that thing tomorrow. And then the next shiny thing comes along or, you know, the day job comes along. And so many things I talk about, get interested and excited about, and then I never go pick them up like Kubernetes, for example. But Elixir was different. You know, we had Chris McCord on the show. Phoenix spoke to me in a way that most web frameworks don't. I was very familiar with Ruby on Rails built a career around that for a decade or so. And Phoenix checked a lot of the boxes with Elixir, had this Ruby-esque thing going on, at least uh, superficially, I think. And Phoenix had this Rails-esque thing going on superficially as well, but enough where I felt comfortable moving over. I felt productive right away. And then it had other things going for it that really attracted me. So I was ready for something new at the time. And like I said, because it was a side thing, it needed to be something I was excited about. And I was writing Rails apps all day, every day for customers. And so I just wanted to try that and see if I could, you know, get something proof of concepted. And I was very productive right away. So I just ran with it. And at the point of deployment, that's where I hit the wall. And I said, oh, I need some help. No, no longer fun. And that's when I reached out for, to Gerhard. <laughs> Isn't it kind of funny how that works too? It's like you were productive working with Rails for so long, but 
just being excited about something really like really moves the needle forward to picking something new and, and actually developing something with it. I find that to, to be the same way. It's like, you know, maybe it's not like Rails is bad after 10 years. It's just like, I'm just getting bored. I just want to try something else. And I continue to write Rails apps throughout, you know, the other things I was doing. And there are times today, if I was tasked with a specific thing, I would probably pick a Rails app. Um, but yeah, because of like the experimental play aspect of what I was doing at the time, and because I wanted this to be a platform for the changelog for the next 10 years, not for the last 10 years, I was like, well, you know, it's not like I just willy nilly picked up Elixir and a Phoenix. I had checked it out. I had been tracking with Elixir for a long time. I had been interested in the language. I had tried Erlang. So these things were interesting to me. Erlang's syntax, I just couldn't quite grok it. Just not smart enough, I guess, to get over that hump. But Elixir kind of brought it down to my level enough where I could get over that hump and feel productive and then fall in love with things like pattern matching and all the stuff that Erlang has and that Elixir also has. And yeah, I mean, it probably was the difference between me cranking out our custom platform in nine months or me losing interest after, you know, six weeks and us just like rolling out a new site on WordPress again. Right. So when it came to rolling out that MVP of the first platform with uh, Phoenix and Elixir after the rewrite, did it take about nine months to do that or was it uh, sooner or later? The the actual coding of the platform or the deployment or both? Uh, just the coding, like, you know, getting it to the point where, okay, I'm ready to deploy this. Yeah, I feel like it was nine months. I don't know. It's been over five years now, so I don't know the actual time frame. It wasn't like I was coding away the entire time. It was like fit into the gaps. One of the nice thing about being a freelance consultant is you have gaps throughout the day right? You have like your billable hours and you work those, but maybe you have like one day where there's four billable hours and you don't have any maintenance or, you know, back, back office things to do. And so you could just slot in investment time. And that's what I was doing with the change log the whole time. Like I was writing for the change log. I was podcasting. I just slot it in between things that my, you know, gaps in my business. And so that's what I did with the platform was I really slotted it in. I think the elapsed time was probably six to nine months. You know, if I collapse that down like labor hours, it was minimal, maybe 100, 150 hours um, to go from zero to, you know, ready to replace what we needed. Yeah, that's amazing. And like in the grand scheme of things, 100, 150 hours, whatever is, is, is nothing, right? Especially since it's a new ecosystem for you to take on. Right. So were there any code changes that uh, once you were ready to deploy, Gerhard, did you look at the code base and you were like, well, probably we need to change this, this and that to make it deployable? Actually, if I remember correctly, there were very few changes to the code base itself because we took it. Uh, Jared was already playing with eDeliver to see how it did work and can we just get it out there and what it would look like going forward. And I still remember the 15 questions that I was asking Jared because I realized there's so much more than just getting it out there. Right. How do you do blue-green? How do you do migrations? How do you do backups? Um, how they do builds, tests. There was a lot of stuff there. When we started, I think our beginning with the deployment was somewhat similar in that I really enjoyed the whole area. And I think the beginning, I was doing it on the side um, whenever I had some free time uh, because it was fun. And the initial deploy, I think it took a couple of months, some number of months, I don't know, but this was like spread out. So a few hours here, a few hours there, maybe half a day. And then all put together, I think in about two weeks, we had something that ran tests, ran builds. Um, I think, do you remember, Jared, whether we had concourse to begin with? I don't recall. Yeah, it's been many years, uh, but we had like this really cool CI. It was all new. So the whole spirit of trying new things 
and trying things that there was like a lot of uh, activity around, we continued even with the deployment. So Docker, I think at the beginning was already getting a bit more traction, but in production, it was still maybe not the most widely used technology at the time. I mean, even now Docker, right, is not the most widely used technology in production, uh, but we made it work. And for us, um, it worked for a couple of years. And then we had Ansible and went through a couple of stages and it all grew in a way that, hey, this is cool. Let's try it out. And some things worked out, others didn't work out. And that was okay because we picked and chose what made sense for us. And we always took stock after a year of picking and choosing these things and working on them. Again, put together, maybe, maybe it was two weeks, three weeks of work. And then we shared our learnings and explained why we did certain things. And we have been repeating this process for, I think this was the third or the fourth year. I can't remember. It's been some number of years and it always worked really well. So it was like this uh, incremental process to, towards better. And that's what we had when it came to deployment. The app itself, I don't know what they changed a lot. It improved for sure. Every, almost like every six months, there's like a fairly big improvement coming to the app, but it's still Phoenix, it's still Elixir, it's still comfortable, and that hasn't changed. Right. Yeah, I think that's a great way to go about it, like actually trying things out, measuring what works, what doesn't, because it's so easy to fall into that research loop where you just read stuff, look at stuff, read stuff, look at stuff, but you don't do it, and then you realize like six months down the line, you have like no improvement at all. Exactly. Swinging back to the development side of things, uh, Jared, do you want to talk us through a little bit like how this application is architected? Like, is it a monolithic app in one repo? Is it broken up into microservices, et cetera? Sure. Yeah, it's a monolithic application in a single repo. It's not an umbrella style or anything. It's like a stock Phoenix application. In fact, a lot of people have used it for a reference application of like what a somewhat standard Phoenix application looks like. Now, with the caveat of I don't use Phoenix contexts, which is advisable by the Phoenix team and by the community. Um, the, the app predated context, and when context came along, I didn't see the value it provided for my circumstance and knowing full well that some people swear by it and think it's great, but you know, it's, it's a kind of a boring CMS. It allows you to publish podcast episodes and log news and comment and do all the things that CMSs do. And so it's kind of like bog standard, as they say over there, it's uh it's typical. It has a Postgres backend. It has images and, mp3s and css and like it has an asset pipeline kind of a thing it has an admin and it has a front end but it's all just like standard mvc style phoenix application nick you know it pretty well you've in fact if there was one person on the earth who might know my code base as well as i do it's probably yourself nick you probably read more of changelog.com's code base than anybody besides me out there so you know what it's like well, I'm not going to say maybe guaranteed, but that is true. I spent a lot of time looking at that code base. <laughs> You've combed through it, man, which I appreciate because you found a lot of things where I either made a dumb decision or you, or I can't recall why I made a decision or you found a few security problems over the years. So I definitely appreciate the eyes on, on the code. Yeah, no problem. And, and honestly, like to be completely real here, I don't even know if I would have started with Phoenix and Elixir if your code base weren't open sourced because... It was very hard for me, at least, to find like practical, like real-world examples of how the hell do I write this stuff without really knowing much about, you know, Phoenix and Elixir and functional programming. And it was just so so great just to look at a code base, look at the end result, like this thing is actually running, 
And then it's like, cool, that's how I do authentication with magic tokens or magic links if I want to do that. And like, here's how to do this, 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 and that. Well, you had a lot of, a lot of test cases. Yeah, it was great just to, to go through that. Which is awesome to hear because that's why we open sourced it. It's not the kind of platform where we open sourced it so you could run your own podcast network off of the thing. Now, of course you could, but like we didn't code it to be modular and configurable and all those things that you'd want if it was a podcast CMS. It is our website, very much so. So much so that in the announcement open source post, I showed how I have some of our podcast slugs hard-coded in areas of like the CSS or across the, because it's this is our website. So we never open sourced it to be a, you know, clone this, configure a few things and launch your own CMS. We cloned it or we open sourced it for the exact reason and purpose that you used it for. So I'm so happy to hear that you've found value in that over the years because for, for people who know web development and are, you know, trying to know, not it's not even maybe best practices, but just like see how people are doing it in the real and can follow along and then use that as something to look at for inspiration or for reference and build their own thing. Uh, I think that's tremendously valuable. And I think you're a good testament to the fact that we put some value out there and yeah, that makes me feel good. Yeah. And even like with the context stuff, it's like, well, you can just look at your code base, see that you have a folder of schemas there. And, and if I wanted to use context, then it's like, okay, well, I just group my stuff up by context. Like it, it's not a big deal to make that change at all. Right. So by the way, Gerhard, when it came to, you know, discovering that this app was a monolithic app, did that make you happy in the end to know that you didn't have to, you know, try to deploy like 15 different services? It did very much. So it made things so much simpler and, um, without going into too much detail, but I have a significant background in Erlang myself. Um, so I understand it really well. And, um, when it comes to the Erlang VM in a way with all the applications that are running inside it and the supervision trees, and then you have the Erlang distribution as well, how you get like clustering out of the box you kind of have a microservices architecture already built in and it's actor-based. So if you squint at it, it's kind of happening in a single context in the Erlang VM. It scales really nicely. Um, it can use um, all the CPUs on the system and it just understands this, the, the messaging pattern, which enables you to build things in a way that you wouldn't in a typical application. So you wouldn't like call classes, you would just pass messages. And then is that really different from a microservices application? Um, maybe the interfaces are slightly different and uh, the way you interact with different applications would be different. But uh, in essence, um, you, you do have very rich ecosystem happening inside of the VM and a lot of power in the VM. And that's why, for example, you don't need background workers. It's just all there. You just start this process and everything you need is there. So from that perspective, you have a lot of power with a single process. And if one is not enough, that's okay. You can spin up another one on another VM or host and you can cluster them. And now you have two Erlang VMs that can communicate with one another, can call pass messages along. And yeah, you have your distributed monolith, but with a different meaning. So I really like that about it. So the fact that it was a single process to run, it did, it did simplify things. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting that you bring up uh, background workers there too, because there are a number of background worker tools in Elixir that other folks have made in the community. There's Obin and what is the other one, the EXX or something like that. So you guys aren't using any of those. So what do you do right now for handling background jobs? We just use the built-in Elixir, which is, you know the the Beam provides 
those things and we just use that. Did you find yourself like having to write more code to manage things that, that are considered usually pretty important when it comes to background work, like maybe uniqueness guarantees or, you know, doing stuff in the future, like periodic tasks, et cetera? We don't have any forward looking scheduler type of functionality. And so, no, when I do run things on a schedule, I just have a thing that wakes up once a minute and sees if it should run or not. And so some of that's just built into application logic. Um, so I do have like a recurring background thing called quantum, which is kind of like Erlang based cron scheduling, you know, without any, without operating system level cron. And so we use that for some recurring stuff. Um, but no, I just, I just fire and forget, you know? Right. And it's been fine. Yeah. It's always nice when you can reduce complexity. Although my friend always mentions like you can never remove complexity. It just gets moved somewhere else. Right. But we, we move it into like the 30 plus years of effort put in by uh, hundreds of smarter people than me on the Erlang VM. Right. Yeah. That is uh, definitely a great spot to put that complexity. <laughs> now, speaking of uh, quantum, maybe do you want to run through maybe a couple of other libraries that you have in your mix file that are really helped you build the platform out? Like, you know, you mentioned earlier about you know, uploading images, and I know you do some markdown parsing. Yes, stalling while I open my mix EXS file. So our biggest dependencies are file upload mechanisms. So I'm trying to find the, I'm trying to remember the name of that thing, ARC. So ARC is how we handle file uploads, and ARC Ecto is the Ecto adapter for ARC. And so this is how we upload the MP3s. This is how we upload avatars, images into our news and blog posts and all of that kind of stuff. This also is a mechanism by which we do kind of the fanciest thing that we do, which is to automatically add all the MP3 metadata to the files based on what we put into our admin. So that actually does require a non-Elixir dependency, which is FFmpeg. So that is one of the hard constraints of our deploys is we need to have FFmpeg installed on whatever machine the application is running on because it shells out at that point because the id3 tags that we do are some somewhat complex and there's no id3 v2 writer library in elixir which is on my long list of things to do which always gets pushed to the list of things you never do i would love to do that but i have not written that yet and nobody else has either and so we shell out to ffmbeg so that's also a dependency what else do we use that's important. We use Bamboo from ThoughtBot to do our email delivery. A lot of the system is around notifications, right? People can subscribe via email. And then we also have email notifications around becoming a guest. So like when your episode goes live, everybody who's on the episode gets an email from us, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of emails being sent out there. We use Bamboo for that. We also uh, appreciate ThoughtBot's factory. I can't remember what their factory library is called. Ex Machina. Ex Machina, which is a great name. How did I forget that name? Great <laughs> movie, in my opinion. Cool name. Use that for uh, in our test environment. Everything else is pretty basic. There is a, you know, there's a markdown parser, of course. That's, I think, a wrapper around an Erlang thing. Uh, Scrivener is a library that we use for pagination. I don't know, I'm getting more and more boring as we go. Timex is great. If you're using Elixir, Timex is great, especially before the Elixir language had a better date and time support than it does now. It's kind of formalized around a few things, but before that, uh, it was kind of difficult to work with dates and times. And we do a lot of that kind of stuff because a lot of it's about like when a thing gets published, when the recording's scheduled, 
what time this thing is going to happen, etc. So we use Timex for that, which we love. I'll stop there. I think so, yeah. We can always link to the uh, mix file and people can go check it out if they want to see the exhaustive mm-hmm. list. Now, when it comes to those emails, uh, when I was crawling through your code base, you had such a great system for dealing with subscriptions using like embedded schemas. Do you want to like walk us through how you arrived at that solution? Sure. So we joked before the show that he's Gerhard Lazu or is he Gerhard Lazy? And he said, I'll take lazy because that's funny. But actually, I'm pretty lazy. So one of my superpowers as a developer is my laziness. I use embedded schemas because they allow me to be lazy in a way that is not, I think, foolish. Sometimes it comes back to bite you, but in that case, uh, it doesn't bite us very much at all. So Ecto has embedded schemas built into it. Of course, Postgres has great tooling around that with the JSON data types. And so we rely on that for a lot of things such as uh, email notifications, like any sort of settings that you want to have on your person. Uh, which podcast you subscribe to that allows us the flexibility to like add new podcasts to subscribe to or add new notifications without database migrations. Um, so yeah, it's all built in using just the standard Ecto embedded schemas. And what else we want, you want to know about it? I think that's about it. But Gerhard, going back to what he said before about FFmpeg, you know, needing that dependency on the machine for you know the application to even run. Did something like that push you towards using Docker, uh, you know, Dockerizing the application, at least at least in development, to make it easier for people to get things set up? Um, that was not the reason, but I was expecting this question. So yes, everything is like in a container. We have an image for every single commit. An image gets the tests run, an image gets built, and it gets pushed to Docker Hub even today. FFmpeg was not a reason for going down the Docker path. It was simply the deployment system. So making sure that we have the correct version of Erlang installed, the correct version of Elixir, the fact that we are not dependent on a system package for us to get the right version, those were the primary reasons for pushing us to Docker, not to mention about the deploys as well. So the caching, um, it just, in the early days, it, it sped up deploys and it kept things relatively simple. Yeah, and I mean, Docker was there from day one. And we had the Docker image and all that. Now, the way we used Docker in the early days was a bit weird because we used to mount the volumes of all the compiled, um, like the dependencies which we downloaded and even compiled. And if nothing changed, we'd just reuse that. Um, so would you reuse like the volume where all those dependencies were compiled and downloaded? So it was a little bit like build packs without being build packs, but it behaved like build packs. Um, Heroku made this concept popular, and then Cloud Foundry also used it to great success for many years. Obviously nowadays, and I say nowadays, like in the last, I think in the last two years, we just build our CI CD system, builds an image, runs the tests, and then when we run the tests, we already have all the dependencies at the right version cached, and we use Circle CI today. So that handles a lot of the caching. But the final artifact is an image, and that embeds everything. So it's actually every single commit that we make um, into master will result in a new image. So it's very easy for us to pick any commit that we want to go back to because we have the the final artifact and it's self-contained. So from that perspective, Docker images were great for us. Nice. And then on the uh, development side of things, uh, Jared, I remember, I don't know if that's changed recently, but for the longest time, you didn't run the code base in Docker. Is that correct? That's correct. And I still do not. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was due to, was it just performance issues or something else? 
it was mostly due to how slow Docker is on Mac and my stubbornness to stay on Mac all these years. It's just too slow. And so there's also, there's just, I do not like that small layer of indirection in my development environment. If it were faster, I would put up with it because I do like the fact that anybody new can just Docker compose up or whatever the, the command is and just be running. I see the value there. And that was one of the things I did say from the very beginning with Docker. I do see the value there. We want our development environment to be an easy setup. And that's like the easiest way to normalize that without just like step-by-step instructions or some sort of shell script. But I was already set up to run and I couldn't be pushed off that because I just like being as close to the running processes as possible. If Docker for Mac was faster and it was like instant, like it is on Linux, I probably would have been able to switch off, but it never was. So I never did. And I still have it. Right. And then that's totally valid. That's actually one of the things which, um, in hindsight, I don't think it worked that well because we didn't have uh, unanimity on the team. Like we couldn't say everybody uses Docker because there were issues with it. And for some people worked, but for others, not so much. And you know the saying, if it ain't fixed, sorry, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. Um, it wasn't broken for Jared and we never had any issues with that approach. So why fix something that works perfectly fine? Going forward, I think the ecosystem changed a lot in the last, even in the last year. So we have scaffold.dev, which brings that nicer development experience to Kubernetes and it syncs much quicker and it just offloads all the build to the cluster, wherever that runs. And there's also uh, tilt.dev, which I'm even more excited about. So I'm hoping that now that we are on Kubernetes, we'll have one more go at changing the way we develop. So there's a couple of tooling in this space, which I'm sure as more of us will switch to ARM, I'm looking at Jared, maybe he's already started the transition, um, running all this stuff on a platform, which has been optimized for building, running, testing. I think it will, it will change things. So that's, that's, I don't want to give too much away, but that's one of the things that I'm looking for the next year for 2021, how to improve our development process so that Jared doesn't have to develop on his Intel Mac. He can go to his ARM Mac and not worry about any of like what's not working on ARM and everybody else can use the same process. So if there's any issues with it, it will be easier. Not to mention others. So others that we want to share this with, I don't develop one way and Jared develops another way and someone else develops another way, Alex or uh, Lars. So we don't want that. We want a standard way that works for everybody, but we haven't found it yet. Maybe next year. Right. I guess on the upside there, I don't know if you guys know this, but Docker Desktop 3.0 just came out, but it, it says in the changelog of it, uh, Mac OS improvements drastically when it comes to just overall speed boost. So might be worth checking huh. out. Um, but I totally agree. It's like, it's so funny because I use Windows here at WSL2 and Docker Desktop and it runs pretty nicely. But yeah, I mean, that dev loop, like an extra four seconds of waiting sometimes like is actually pretty bad. Like it makes a big difference when you have to do that all the time. I'd be curious, Jared, you know, maybe going back to other bits and aspects of the site, you do use Webpack as well, right? We do. Yep. So locally to get all that set up, do you run multiple commands or did you make a make file so you can just spin everything up quickly or what did you do to combat that? So Webpack is integrated into Phoenix's tooling. So when I'm ready to run my Phoenix server, I just run mix phx.server and it actually spins up Webpack uh, as a part of that. 
And so there's no separate there. It's really much the same way that brunch. And I think Webpack is now the official way that the Phoenix project like generates or scaffolds. Uh, back when I set it up, it was on brunch, I believe. And so I was kind of dissenting in that way from the community. But now I think Webpack is the way to go. So yeah, so the way that I run the environment, I just have a Tmux uh, session, which when I launch it, it has the server in one. Another one, which is the console, which is IEX, you know, dash mix or whatever it is. And then my third one is just like bash. And then I open up VS Code and go from there. Nice. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I sometimes forget that, you know, you can spawn Webpack in the main process of Phoenix, like at least the watcher, you know, because I remember when I was first contributing to your code base, one of the first things I did was, you know, I dockerized it, you know, using Docker and Docker Compose, but I used multi-stage Docker file to have Webpack run in its own stage and the Phoenix app in, in its other stage. So in my mind, like I was running the Webpack watcher as a separate process on my machine, but only in dev, basically. Gotcha. Yeah, I remember that long ago making that PR, I think for getting Docker Compose or a whole Docker setup going. And then Gerhard went in there and, and actually finished it up and got it working nicely. <laughs> Teamwork. Yeah, and that's even like went further because um, I don't think anybody used that. We, but we even had Docker Swarm running locally. So in Docker, we enabled the Swarm mode and then we could have all the services running, the PostgreSQL. Um, there were a few others, Nginx, we could even test what it would behave with a proxy in front because we didn't do that right in development. So I, I went a bit further, but that was not as useful as I was hoping it would be. We did use it in production. So that's exactly how it ran in production in Docker Swarm with all the services up and running. And um, yeah, it was fine for I think about a year and a half. Um, it worked well. Nice. So by the way, swinging back to that Webpack setup, uh, Jared, do you want to go over uh, how this app is set up in terms of like, are you using server render templates with sprinkles of JavaScript, as DHS loves to say, as well as a lot of other people, myself included, or is this an API backend with some type of, you know, React frontend? We are a JavaScript sprinkles web app. The one thing, I actually wrote a blog post about this, which maybe we can link up as well. The one thing that we needed for changelog.com did we need it? We really wanted it. I think we needed it was a persistent player across the entire website. So you land on a podcast episode, you think, oh, this is interesting. I'm going to listen to it. You hit play. It pops up the player. It's playing the episode. Now you realize that we also have a news feed and you think, oh, I'm going to go check out the news feed. You click on news link. And then if it stopped the episode there, I think we lost. I think that was, that was bad user experience. So we want that player to persist across all pages. But we didn't want anything else that SPAs have to offer, including like the big payload and like the requirement for an API and a front end separation and all the complication that is in there. I've built those and I wanted to avoid that because I'm lazy and because I like simple things. And so in order to accomplish those two ends, end one being a persistent player across all pages and end two being not an SPA, I pulled in turbo links, which was controversial at the time, probably still is, who knows, because turbo links, uh, which came out of the Rails ecosystem, but actually has a hard separation at this point. It's a JavaScript library that does not require Rails and does not require specific uh, backend responses either. For the most part, Nick and I, you and, you and I both know there are a few things you have to, to do, but uh, that allowed me to have a JavaScript sprinkle, sprinkle site that appeared to be a single page application because as you navigate the site, things don't disappear unless we want them to. So yeah, it's a typical JavaScript sprinkles. It's even old school 
event handler style. There's no component library. There's uh, no routing on the front end. We render everything with HTML. We decorate things as necessary. And we wait for events to happen and we call callbacks and then we modify the DOM just like the good old days. Right. Yeah. And it's so crazy too about Turbolinks, right? It's like you bring in this dependency, basically add one line of JavaScript to start it up. And, you know, you kind of like listen for different events. And of course you need the, you know, the plug on the Phoenix side to get it working for like form submissions. But man, is it such a little effort to get such a big benefit? It really is. And it's the magic of it feeling like you are you know, on this application where you can have this persistent player across the entire website and it works just like a single page app would, how it would navigate without any of the additional complexity. I think it's, it's kind of like a well-kept secret, even though I've tried to trumpet TurboLinks for many years. And that's why I wrote that blog post back in the day and why I still talk about it because there are so many people who are over-engineering their front ends because they want parts of what a single page application offers. And if you can just accomplish those parts without bringing in the complexity of the single page app and all that is implied there, that's a huge productivity win. And you can take that time and that effort and that money and put it elsewhere. Yeah, for so sure. So I think, I think people do not give TurboLinks the credit that it deserves. And we've installed it in 2015, 2016. And I have no reason for swapping it out for anything else. Now maybe, some of my callback stuff, I, I can see a need at this point on my front end to start de uh, developing some components because things are kind of sloppy there. And I thought that would happen over time and it slowly happened to our website. So there are some refactorings on our front end that I would definitely do, but taking TurboLinks out is not one of them. Now, on the topic of that though, because I feel like in the Phoenix and Elixir community, you know, it's all about the live view. Is there a reason why you haven't gone that route. I mean, like you say, you don't want to just throw everything away because it's working great, but have you given a shot to maybe use Live View like in the admin or some other area? I have. I tried Live View, a Live View scratch pad. So the use case that I came up with, I think is like perfect for Live View, which is kind of a collaborative page where multiple people can edit the same document live. And the reason why we would use that is not for show notes for an episode, but really for a scratch pad during recording. So our shows always have multiple people on them, especially shows like JS Party and GoTime, which are panel shows. And so the panel will share a document, which ultimately somehow gets massaged and turned into a title, a summary, and some show notes, right? Some markdown links. And I thought, well, right now, some people use Google Docs. I use a thing called HackMD, which is a collaborative markdown thing. It's just pretty cool. And some people use Dropbox paper, just, you know, it's kind of like this, eh, where's the doc? Who Did you share it with the right people? Blah, blah, blah. What if that could just be part of the admin? That would be pretty neat. And it wouldn't have to manifest itself anywhere on the front end. But if every episode just had this scratch sheet that we all knew where it was, and you could just open up that page and start editing like Markdown, that would be pretty cool. So I started down that route with Live View. I do think that's like Live View's sweet spot. And I was live streaming my work on that and I made it like 40% of the way there and just lost interest because I didn't totally get it. I hadn't quite grokked live view at the time and nobody was screaming for this to get done. Whereas there were other things that were more important to work on. So I never quite wrapped back around to that. I still have a branch on my local development environment, which is basically that scratch pad uh, with the live view code in there, but I've never finished it. I would like to, but I just haven't got around to it. Right. Yeah. So I guess you kind of treat live view as like 
instead of sprinkles of JavaScript, it's like sprinkles of, you know, real-time activity stuff. You wouldn't go necessarily, you know, replace the entire site to use Live View instead of uh, Turbolinks, at least for like transitioning between page A and B. Not unless somebody else did the work. Right. <laughs> or it was like a, a, you know, if that was a half an hour change and there were some wins there, like less JavaScript, I don't know exactly what the wins would be. Maybe simplifying things. Um, what would the wins be there? You know Turbolinks pretty well. I know this is something that you and I discussed at one point, but what would be the, the advantage of going live view besides it's the new shiny in the Phoenix community? Yeah, I mean, it's tough to say. I don't want to be like, well, there are no benefits. Don't use it. But it's like one less dependency of not needing Turbolinks. But I mean, there's a cost, right? It's like your controllers are going to go, like you have a lot of code to rewrite kind of to make it all work with live view. And then you have a persistent WebSocket connection for everything. Like that could be tricky even for deployment. I've, I, I don't want to get into the details of that because I've never deployed it specifically, but I've seen some stuff on the forums where it's like, you know, I deployed on like GCP and, you know, the WebSocket uh, connection is timing out after X amount of time because that like, you know, the cloud hosting level, they just have timeouts on the load balancers. I'm sure you can get around all that stuff, but it's like there is added complexity. Maybe certain things are better, but yeah, I haven't gone down that route personally either as well. Yeah, I think I could be convinced if it was easy on the front end and then the changes to my controller code moving to live view code somehow like had infrastructure uh, wins, not infrastructure like deployment, but like architecture wins in my code. Like all of a sudden my controllers disappeared. Hey, I would love to not have controller code because it's usually the hairiest thing I got and the hardest to test and the slowest to test. So if live view was easier to test and maybe some of my templates are simplified because I'm putting that in views or something, then I could maybe see where like, yeah, long-term, this is the direction we're going. It makes sense to invest this. I don't know if that's the case. I don't think that's the case, but it might be. I think that might convince me, but otherwise, I just feel like I'm rearranging the furniture. Right. So like on the back burner, but let's see in the future maybe. So maybe now we can transition into like what the rest of your tech stack looks like. So you mentioned, you know, Phoenix and Elixir power uh, the main site. Postgres as a backend for the database. Is there anything else going on? Like I would imagine maybe, I guess, Nginx is in front of uh, Cowboy or no? Yes, there is um, an Nginx proxy. We're using Ingress Nginx. We used to have our own image, which used to bundle some legacy assets. So we were taking the official Nginx image, adding some of our own stuff, and then repackaging it and distributing it like that as the changelog proxy. When we switched to uh, Linode Kubernetes Engine, we did away with our Nginx proxy image, and we're just using Ingress Nginx. We added some more rules, I think, to the, let me remember this, because we went through a few stages. I think the application gained some extra responsibilities around the redirects. So now it's more self-contained. That knowledge was not as spread as it was before between Nginx and the application. And I think that was a, a nice win in that it's more cohesive. Um, and as Jared was saying, Atom can add a redirect rule very easily via the application code. So there's no Nginx or infrastructure-related work to be done or infrastructure-related config to be written. So that was nice. And um, other than that, we have um, a load balancer we're using, but that's all like an ingress, and we get that from um, um, Linode, so it's all fully integrated LKE with, with their stack. And otherwise, we have uh, fastly in front, so we have a CDN, and that speeds things up, especially MP3s, and it distributes them through the entire world, so that gives us a very nice boost. And as of recently, we started adding more on the observability side. So for example, um, not just Grafana and Prometheus, but also Loki 
for all the logs. We are um, started using Grafana Cloud recently, the synthetic monitoring and a couple of other things. So I think we're getting a bit more refined on the observability side and on the just how things work side. And uh, I think there's some wins to be had when it comes to stats processing, because currently the app has a lot of that responsibility. I think we talked about that last year, but we didn't have time to do anything about it. So it'd be nice to push some of that responsibility out of the app because it doesn't seem like to, to fit nicely there and into a stack which is which was purposefully built for observability. Right. Now on the topic of that, uh, are you guys using like Elixir telemetry anywhere to maybe capture your own stats, like user-generated stats? Not currently, but uh, we are adding PromEX. So that has been happening over like the last two, three weeks. And that's... Um, exposes a lot of the uh, the B metrics, the Erlang via metrics via uh, uh, the uh, telemetry. And I think there's more stuff that we'll be able to add going forward. So I think that's a very nice integration point, that telemetry in Elixir, in Phoenix, and in Ecto and everything else. So with PromEX is the first step in that direction. Right. Yeah, I'm lo really looking forward to the day. Well, I guess technically we have it with live dashboard now. At least you can pull out some like Ecto stats and, you know, request response stuff. Have you have you played around with that yet or no? Yes. So that's where the integration comes in. That's part of the integration. What metrics do we meet? Are they correct? I've spent quite a bit of time in this world, in uh, the metrics world specifically, before uh, open metrics came about, before open telemetry came about. Um, so when Prometheus was still just Prometheus, it wasn't like this observability stack and like all the things built around it and Cortex and Loki and there's like so many things um, coming like the, the whole tracing thing. So before in the early days I spent quite a bit of time looking at metrics and B metrics and all sorts of Erlang VM related metrics. So starting with that and starting from there what else can we add? So PromEX for example it doesn't have ectometrics I mean, maybe it does today, but it didn't have like three days ago. So it's something which is being worked on right now. And that's one of the collaboration which is happening, yeah, over the holiday season in December. Before the year is, before 2020 is out, we will have this nice integration between Phoenix, Ecto, uh, Grafana Cloud, and all those metrics and logs and structured logging as well with Loki. So all that stuff is right now in the works. Awesome. Yeah, I remember it must have been six months ago, a year ago. I don't know if you're still doing this, but you did have all the, like your old metrics set up like live, like anyone can just look at that public on the website and see a really, really nice dashboard of everything like system health, you know, memory, CPU, disk requests. Like, is this basically like a, I don't want to say a better version of that, but like, you know, the second iteration on that. It is. It's not public currently. We still need to figure out what can we make public, how, because now we're starting to add more metrics. And some of it, I mean, very soon it may be subscriber metrics or consumption metrics. So they may be business metrics and we may not want to make everything public. So I think there are some decisions to be made going forward, but um, it is an iteration on that, yes. And before what you used to know was called net data. So we we're using net data to expose the metrics and there was a net data dashboard. But going forward, um, we have Prometheus. I think that's right now Grafana is the UI. So grafana.changelog.com. But that redirects you automatically to GitHub. And if you're not in a certain team, you won't get access to it. So those metrics are no longer public. Okay. So maybe now we can rewind a bit and just talk a little bit more about 
your whole deployment setup, starting with uh, where you guys decided to host this. So you mentioned Linode there a few times, and anyone who has listened to any of the podcasts on your platform, they know Adam saying, you know, they, they've been uh, your sponsors, and you've been using them for a really long time, since I think 2016, right? That's right. Yeah, so yeah, we have been using Linode for, for many years. We have a very good relationship, and a special relationship, I have to say, with them, uh, because when Linode Kubernetes Engine was introduced and a couple of other um, products as well, but specifically LK when it was introduced, I remember it was KubeCon 2019, North America, and um, I was it was just a beta, it was just coming out. We started using Linode Kubernetes Engine very early on so that we can give them the feedback as to what needs to improve for us to be able to run changelog.com on Linode. So the partnership is special in that we're not just promoting Linode, we're using most of the things that they have. And if something isn't quite right, or if something can be improved, we give that feedback directly. We give it openly, whether it's via GitHub issue, whether it's via the engineers that we have personal relationships with, um, professional relationships with, let me correct that, <laughs> <laughs> that we have professional relationships with. And uh, and um, yeah, we just, we just improve the whole Linode stack. As with everything, the more you learn a system, the more you realize the improvements that can be done. Some are easy, some are hard, but it's worth improving regardless. And that's the approach that we've taken with Linode, with Fastly, with others. When it comes to the stack, um, it has always been on Linode in different forms. Um, previous year, it, we were using um, Container Linux, so we had a managed Docker system, and that was nice, uh, but it wasn't Kubernetes. We didn't have a cluster. This year with Kubernetes, with Linode Kubernetes Engine, we have a cluster of three nodes, and there are still some things which don't work quite as well as they could. For example, uh, persistent volumes. Um, there are some improvements to be made around performance, and this is in our blog post, uh, the new changelog setup for 2020. If you go to changelog.com, you can find it, where we mention specifically what needs to be improved and what our suggestions are. So when it comes to the entry point, which is provisional Linode cluster, and then we have all the definitions for all the resources that we need. Some of it, I think it's like baseline uh, components, such as, for example, Cert Manager, right, for TLS, and that gives us Let's Encrypt certificates. Um, we have external DNS, which adds IPs and handles all of that from the DNS perspective directly from uh, Kubernetes, so we don't have to do any manual DNS changes. It's something that we used Terraform before, and that was okay, but we had to run Terraform apply for those changes to be applied. With Kubernetes, they're automatic and they happen all the time. It's a continuous loop, continuous convergence, and that's really nice. And then from the Kubernetes API, we get access to block storage. So we just provision persistent volumes and behind the scenes that automatically happens and we don't have to worry about that. And with ingresses, we just get Linode node balances. So again, one less thing to use Terraform for. And that's one of the big wins. Everything that we used to run externally via Terraform, or we had quite a few, uh, quite a bit of logic in make files, all that is becoming less config and more data. So we're becoming more and more infrastructure as data rather than infrastructure as code or infrastructure as config. I think infrastructure as code, that's what it was known for. So now it's becoming more infrastructure as data. It's just YAML, lots and lots of YAML. Right. So now you've gone from, <laughs> you've gone from like, a thousand lines of make files to a thousand lines of YAML now, or is it like a little bit better than that? <laughs> it is, yeah, it is a little bit better than that because some components we just pick, like for example, Cert Manager, 
right? It's like, it has a lot of things. And all we do is like, we just install this YAML, which right now we take it from GitHub. And then um, obviously it's versioned and all that. And then that YAML applies to all the things. So all we do is just, we just like reference a file and some are not even our files because we just consume it. Right, so it's almost like being able to use a library instead of having to write the library yourself. Exactly, exactly, yes. Mm. Okay, so I'm actually not super well versed with uh, Linode. Do they have like a managed Postgres database service that you can use, or is that something you decided not to do? Not just yet. So that's something which is on the roadmap. It was on the roadmap for 2020. I think some of the items were pushed to 2021 because this year was very special, and I think that's enough said mm. And uh, on that subject. And uh, we are not using a managed PostgreSQL. It's funny that you say that because PostgreSQL has been, I don't want to say um, a weak link, but we certain issues have been originating in PostgreSQL. Um, and it has to do with uh, optimizations, metrics, just understanding exactly how it runs and making it work for us, which is something that would have been nice if it was just managed and we could say, hey, these are our requirements from it, from our database, our PostgreSQL, just make it happen. We don't care how. Right. Do you want to go over maybe some of the pain points that you had trying to set all that up from scratch? It was less of a setup issue. So for Postgres, we're using the PostgreSQL crunchy data operator. And that gives us a very nice experience around it provisions the whole PostgreSQL stack, including a leader, a followers or database replica. Um, we have um, a service, PVC, all of that. So we just run one command and it provisions this replicated PostgreSQL for us. The problems originate between just like the default. So out of the box, PostgreSQL is no longer, mm, I don't want to say it doesn't match our needs, but we need to tweak it. We need to start tweaking it. The out of the box defaults are not suitable for us. So in order to know what to tweak, we need to get the metrics. In order to get the metrics, we need to integrate it with um, uh, Prometheus and Grafana. And then we have the dashboards and all of that. So there's a lot of work to be done to understand what exactly needs improving. Another thing which I, would, which I want to mention in, in, in this context is the, is the block storage. So the block storage performance in, in Linode, it's something that we would like to see improve. And I think many smart people are already working on improving that. The local SSD disks will be about, I think, 20 to 30 times faster than the persistent block storage. And what that means is that PostgreSQL is slower than it could be if it was running on like SSDs. So that's one of the issues. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a big difference, I would imagine. And we didn't really get a chance to talk about this yet, but like what type of traffic do you guys serve? What type of traffic do we serve? Let's see, I have actually a dashboard open up right here. Uh, something that we've been setting up recently right now. We're looking at the number of responses and over like the last 24 hours, we had 200 requests per minute. And that's like nice and steady. These are just like get requests. I mean, the get request can be anything from an MP3 to whatever. So it doesn't mm -hmm. like, it's not like big ones or small ones. And you have to remember that in front of this, we have Fastly. So Fastly is caching a lot of these um, um, assets, a lot of these static assets. From the perspective of the app, like in 24 hours, we can get over, well over 100,000 requests. And most of them are just like app requests. Yeah, our main endpoints are our feeds and our main requests are non-human. They are crawlers. They are podcast clients. 
fetching the feed and mm-hmm. seeing if there's new episodes. Those get hit just nonstop. Right. And probably me too, just going to my own profile and clicking around just to see how certain things react because I just want to see <laughs> yeah. how the platform works and I'm too lazy to spin it up locally. <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. So Nick is our second highest form of traffic. It goes feeds and then Nick and then everybody else. <laughs> right. Uh, that's cool though. You guys have a lot more traffic than I thought, to be honest. Was it just like a slow and steady type of thing or did you get pretty spiky at times? It can be spiky at times. Yeah. So we can go like up to, I know, 2000, um, requests in every like 60 minute period and even higher. Um, so yeah, we do have some of those spikes. And also when a lot of the feeds are hit, because of how we query the database and how some of those queries are structured, uh, it can be a very heavy load on the database. So we can be transferring many megabytes per second just because we're querying the, the database. So that can put significant load on the system. Right. Is that an opportunity, Jared, where maybe you can start caching some of those queries or have you done that in the past already? Yes, we do cache those. I've rejiggered the way that I do that caching so we can you know, do better cache and validation as we know one of the hardest problems in computer science. One of the hardest problems in my life is cache validation. Those will only be cold immediately after we publish something at this point or when we redeploy the application because we lose those. It's all in memory caching inside ETS. So you're usually going to hit, you know, one or two of those requests per endpoint. So each podcast has its own feed and then you have the site map. So those are some of the, the heavier hit endpoints and they're going to slow down it used to be every time the cache purged, which I think we had it on like a five minute for a while and like an hour. We we're trying to like find different things. We want it to be so when we hit publish, everything goes out immediately. And so I had to reach, I had to just change the way that I did that so that publishing was like a more official event. And then we would just purge a bunch of caches related to whatever just published. And then we could cache them, you know, forever until something gets updated. Before I was doing it, which is like a, you know, cache this for five minutes kind of a thing. And you'd see those spikes at the top of the hour or at every five minutes or whenever we had those caches having to get reprimed, we would get overloaded, you know, temporarily. And now it's been mitigated, but you still have times where, you know, the caches aren't primed. And so things slow down. And, you know, if you hit our master feed, which pulls in every episode ever, which is like a thousand ish plus, plus all the things for it. So all of the people who are on those episodes, plus all the, I think we probably don't include the transcripts in that one, the show notes, et cetera. You know, you have a, a significant amount of data on that XML file. Then you have to actually render the XML, which Phoenix is fast, but that's just a lot of HTML to render. So that one especially can be slow when it's not cached. Right. And on the topic of caching, you're using the, what is it, CacheX, the library? That's right. So that's an interface into the ETS uh, in-memory store. Right. With a very nice API. Yeah, I appreciate it. Again, less infrastructure for me, right? I don't have to use Memcached or something like that or Redis for caching. Maybe at some point we will want to have something with a more persistent cache. I've looked at what's the new caching thing that you showed me, Nick? Um, hmm. Oh, actually, I think I'm still using Concache and you're using CacheX. Aha. And CacheX is the nice one and Concache is the old one. And it's not quite as nice, but it's still working. Cache X has some stuff where you can persist out your caches to disk temporarily. And so you could use that during like a redeploy so that you don't actually lose your caches uh, when you redeploy the application. I was looking into that, but haven't quite made the switch. Yeah, I'm still on Concache, which is the old school Elixir caching library. They both wrap ETS, but yeah, Cache X has a much nicer API. I do remember that conversation now where I apparently didn't convince you well enough to switch. 
you almost did. And I actually think I tried to switch. I was going to see how fast it would be because it was like, if I can do this in an hour or less, I'll just do it because I can see future wins. But it ended up like 20 minutes in. I was like, yeah, it's more like four hours. So I'm going to stop and I moved on. Right. I think though, before we, you know, we move on here and talk about deployment stuff. One really awesome thing about your code base that I, at least I picked out was you are not afraid to create your own mini wrapper code around other people's libraries, like the markdown parsing stuff. You kind of just made your own markdown module and you call into whatever markdown module you use. And then it was like in your application code, you just call your own module. So if you change the implementation later, it's not a big deal. Yeah, I just assumed everybody does that, but I guess not because people have been like pleasantly surprised that that's a thing that I do. I've just, I've done, I've gone through enough transitions where a library falls out of favor or falls into disrepair or does not have what I need and I need to switch libraries. And that is a huge undertaking, but it's less of an undertaking if I can centralize my calls into that library. So caching is a good example. I have my own cache module and it's just a simple wrapper around concache, but that way all of my concache calls are in a single module. And then I use that, I use my own code everywhere in the app pervasively, right? Like how often do you cache? It's all over the place. And so when it comes time to do that switch, the nice thing about it was I could just go to my cache module and I could see, okay, I have these six functions. I don't know how many there are, but let's say there's six. How easily can I replace these six functions right here without any of my tests failing, with my application acting as normal? If I can do that, I'm swapped. And that's really nice. Now it turns out in that case, I couldn't do it real fast anyways. Can't recall why. Sometimes my module will have a API le an implementation leak, right? Every every abstraction eventually leaks. And if I'm leaking that third-party library elsewhere into my API, then I'll start to realize, ah, this wasn't very good wrapper. It was a bad wrapper. But such a great practice saves you so much down the road. And it's easy to do because all you're doing is basically just fronting functions with your own function. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like you you might not be doing that yourself, but then as soon as you see someone, someone else do it, it's like, what the hell? Like, what have I been doing for the last 15 years? Everybody should do this. Yeah, I think it's it's... I actually don't think there's a drawback besides like just a little bit more code, but there's really, it's very little. It's a, it's a thin wrapper, right? And, uh, you know, you have a chance to inject things when you need to, or maybe add some tracing or logging at a point you have your own code and you're really minimizing that risk of somebody else's code. Yeah, sure. All, all that I'm hearing is selectively non-lazy. That's all I'm hearing. <laughs> there you go. I'm lazy when it's advantageous and I'm non-lazy when it's advantageous. It's the best way to go. Now, speaking of lazy and Gerhard, uh, do you want to walk us through like what it feels like to deploy new code on the system? And maybe actually, maybe this starts with Jared. Do you want to walk us through like what it's like to develop a new feature and then get it up to at least to the point where it's being deployed? So we use Git-based deployment. So from an uh, end user perspective, which is be me, the end user of the deployment, all I have to do is push to master and make sure that that is code that I want to be deployed. And then I let Gerhard's machinations and Kubernetes take over from there. I don't know if you want to hear about my coding process, but you probably don't. It's rather boring. You know, I write a bunch of bad code. I, sl I sl slowly make it better. And then when I'm finally happy with it. I push it. Right. But what about things like uh, pushing to like a feature branch and opening up a PR and then like doing a self-review? Like, do you go through that process or no? No. I will do that for other people. So we have contractors that work with us. If somebody's going to submit a feature, then we go through that process. And so they have PRs and we do the whole thing. But for me, I just 
write the, I mean, I'll write it on a branch if it's a big feature or something I'm not going to finish in a single commit. You know, I, I use Git in that way, but I'm not going to submit myself a PR and then code review myself and then merge myself because I don't like me that much, right? Like there's too much Jared. <laughs> there's too much, there's too much ceremony there. So I just, you know, it's kind of like if I was writing a blog post, I also edit that as I go. I edit my, I refactor as I go. And by the time it's ready to merge into my local master branch, it's already been reviewed. Okay. Because I thought, and maybe I'm wrong here, I thought as soon as code reached master, it was like auto-deployed into production. Is there like a manual flip that needs to be switched for it to actually go live then? Or how does that work hard? It's automatically deployed. It's, yeah, you got it. So I, I would call this adult development in that, like, that like driving. You need to be an adult drive, right? You can kill yourself. It's very easy to kill yourself while you drive. Now, you could take the application down, not quite as dramatic, right, as killing yourself while you drive. But right. if you've pushed into master, if all the tests pass, if it can build, if it gets deployed and it's healthy, it will automatically be promoted. So that's just what happens. If you want to use feature flags to flag your features, then so be it. But as, as long as you commit something to master, it will go into production by default. And I know that it may not be the most popular approach, but it's most certainly the most productive one. And we are a small team, right? We're not like a hundred people that are stepping over each other's toes. We don't have pull requests that span months and months. And if it does span months, maybe it's not a good one to ship. I don't know, something like that. Um, I think as we grow, it will be something that we'll need to change. And I would very much like, now that we have Kubernetes and it's so easy, well, I say so easy, but it's easier to have these um, environments that are pull request based or branch based, and it can be all fully automated. It's something that I would like to work on next year, but I don't think it will be the highest priority, to be honest. And it's something that we've been doing for years, and we never took the website down because of that. There are reasons why we had downtime, but that was never a problem in four years that we have had this approach. And we had this since day one. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense because you do have the CI test being run and it's not going to make its way into Pride if those tests fail. Exactly. Yeah. Now, speaking of cool features, though, um, about you were, you know, you, you were talking about Kubernetes can make certain things easier. Uh, one thing I noticed that some folks do with Heroku, at least, is they have this idea. If you decide to ever do feature branches in the future, right, if your team grows or whatever, the idea that someone can push up, uh, you know, a feature in a feature branch and open up a PR and then a URL will get generated where someone can actually go click like, you know, there'll be like some random hash as a subdomain and go in and check it totally out. Totally cool. Yes. And that's, I think there's a lot of value to be had from combining the development with that. Because if your development is remote and as soon as you started the branch to develop on, you only have to push code, maybe not even create a PR. And as soon as you have a new branch, you automatically have a deployment, which is using the branch name where you can check that code out. You can share it with anybody. You can choose to have a PR and not have a PR, delete the branch, but it's all branch-based. So Git will be at the heart of the deployment and the infrastructure as well. Everything is running in a single repo and everything lives in a sing single repo. That makes a lot of things very easy. And when it comes to working on a feature, create a branch, push some code, or maybe not even push some code, just like make some changes and automatically have something which is connecting to maybe a development Kubernetes cluster or non-prod. Let's call it non-prod. Could be staging, could be dev development, doesn't really matter. 
And as soon as you've started that process, you already have something running, not locally, that anyone on the team can access. And that will give you super fast feedback. You can see it, what it would look like in its final form. We can import data. We can do so many things with that. Yeah, that sounds like a, an awesome setup. And definitely, maybe that's, I don't know, maybe counting my chickens too soon here or whatever. Is that something on the 2021 horizon for you or no? Yes, it is, but it depends on the other things which are more important, such as PostgreSQL, making sure the website, uh, for example, um, the latency, the SLO, we need to improve that. Uh, so it hasn't been great because of um, certain peak times, our latency spikes to over 30 seconds, and, that, and that's not okay. And we have a couple of more things. I don't expect those to take too long, but they are the priority. Okay. Now, on the topic of Kubernetes here, there's such a big... I don't know, difference in how people perceive setting it up is, you know, you have that one camp where it's like, yeah, we just added Kubernetes and now we hit the button and we're at web scale. And the other side of the camp is like, well, I tried using Kubernetes and like I'm comatose and I can't do anything for like the next three years. So (laughs) how was it for you to transition from your old setup to the Kubernetes setup? Was it like really, really, really hard or like what was the story behind that? So the story behind that, like time-wise, it took a few weeks. So a few weeks to do everything from from running, basically from the first command to spin up a cluster to actually doing the migration, it took a, it took us a few weeks. Effort-wise, and again, I'm very biased. Were you learning Kubernetes at that time, Gerhard? Were you learning it at that time or did you know it already? So I knew the basics, but I wasn't running anything on Kubernetes. I knew how it worked and some of the concepts behind Kubernetes are really old. So it's nothing new. It's the same fundamentals, but done better. And that's that's the one thing which I liked because I could recognize a lot of the patterns that we had. So some of the things like, for example, CI, we didn't even have to change because our CI stops at publishing an, an, an image. So we didn't have to work at that part of our pipeline. All the testing, all the packaging, all that stuff didn't have to be touched. Um, when it comes to the deployment and our runtime, the production runtime, that obviously changed, but we could spin up Kubernetes in parallel to what we already had. And I could iterate on that whenever, you know, I had some time, I had a few days or I had a week, I would iterate on that and we would run two environments in parallel, but we didn't route any traffic through Kubernetes. We had a couple of issues, we solved them. There were some things which were really thorny, but when I say thorny, we had a solution like maybe in a day. That was like a hard problem that took a day to solve. I would say medium, it didn't feel hard. It wasn't very hard. And we did have to make some compromises, but all in all, it feels better. It's an improvement. It's not perfect, but will it ever be perfect? I don't think it will. Yeah, there's always going to be something with some product or service that's wrong, but you get around it and you just use what's best for right now. Yes. And there are like all these tools which keep coming in the Kubernetes ecosystem. And I think there needs to be a balance between, am I always going to look at the new tool or will I see through with my approach? Even if it's not the best one, but it's okay, it works. Like you mentioned managed PostgreSQL. There was a point where I was thinking, mm, I wish we just had provisioned a managed PostgreSQL database because right now we're getting to a scale that the default one needs optimizing, needs tweaking. And while we should do that and could do that, it's not as bad. It's not great, but it's not as bad. So we didn't switch to managed PostgreSQL. We just went with what we had. Right. And if that changes in two years from now, it does. If it doesn't, it doesn't, right? Exactly. And yeah, because it's it's something continuous. It's a continuous process. So it's nothing stays like this forever. 
I mean, Kubernetes is like a great platform, but it's just that, it's a platform, it's a way of doing things. It makes certain things easier. And that's, yeah, that's how we've approached it since, yeah, four years when we started this journey. Right. Yeah, it's interesting saying how CI stops with you pushing an image up to, you know, a Docker registry. I think I remember, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, with your old Swarm setup, yeah, didn't you pull down images on like a schedule? Like every couple of minutes you would look to see if there was something new. So it wasn't like you pushing stuff from CI into the Swarm cluster. It was just pull-based. That's exactly right. Yeah, inversion of control. That's exactly right. We had a very simple while loop, like literally a bash while loop. It was so simple. It was a container. All it did, it was trying, it was updating a service. And this was a Swarm service. That's exactly right what we had. And guess what is full of these loops? Kubernetes. There, there are loops everywhere. And responding to events and stuff like that, reconciliation loops. So yeah, that concept, that that fundamental, we had it in the previous system. And now we replaced the fundamental with a slightly better implementation, but the fundamental is still, still there. Right. This is, reminds me from uh, the conversation earlier about pushing around complexity. It's like now the complexity is handled by Kubernetes instead of your bash script. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it was only three lines, so there was nothing complex about it, but <laughs> but it, yeah, yeah, it was bash, yeah, like while true or while sleep 30 seconds, do this, and there was like a variable and whatnot. It was very simple. I do have to say I was very proud of it because it was a very simple solution to a rather complicated problem, and it meant that our CI did not have the keys to our entire production, and that is something that you'll see in so many scenarios where CI can do anything. It can push, it can... You know, yeah. the CI is like, yeah, it's it's the kingdom. Yeah. It's so funny because I was just working on some stuff with that. And I was like, well, do I really want to give CI root SSH access into the server? Probably not. But then like I'm running Docker, but eh, yeah, it's still, it's always fun to not have that problem if you can avoid it. By the way, speaking of like just security and best practices in general, how do you deal with like API keys and secrets with that Kubernetes setup? So the source of truth for us is LastPass. And it's something which we had for many, many years. We commit all the secrets there and we share them. We have like an enterprise account uh, and that's how we share between ourselves those secrets. And then what we have, we have a bunch of make targets which use the LPAS uh, CLI, LastPass CLI to pull them down and uh, configure them, set them as secrets before it was Swarm. Now it's just Kubernetes secrets. It's something which again, I would like us to improve on because it's, it's not great. But it worked for years. Did we have a problem with it? Maybe sometimes, you know, when Jared copy pastes things, he copy pastes them wrong. Mm. <laughs> and then, you know, things don't worry because character is a so yes, it is it is not the ideal process, but it's not so bad. Right? So what would the process look like? Let, let's say Jared accidentally tweeted out some really super secret API keys by accident, and you just needed to reroll the keys and restart the services. Is that like a different type of deploy for you? Because it's probably not something that gets get pushed. Yes, that is correct. So um, I think, Jared, do you want to say what you had done last time when this happened? Well, nothing was leaked, but you still had to rotate the key. How, how was the process for you? I'm very curious about this myself. Yes. So let me just say that the old process was like 11 steps. And I think we're down to like three on a rotation and maybe five on a brand new secret I'm adding. So much nicer than it used to be. And Gerhard actually writes how to's in to the make file. So he's a, he's baller. So what, what I would do, Nick, is I would run make how to rotate secret. And it would tell me the three steps I need to do to get that done. Step one, 
I would update the secret in LastPass by running make update secret secret equals whatever the secret is named. And then step two, I would add the new secret to production by running make LKE changelog secrets. Now, I don't know exactly what that does. So Gerhard can fill that in, but I don't have to. And then step three is I'd restart the app so that it picks up the new secret by running make LKE changelog update. So it's three commands, assuming I don't fat finger. And the last time I just was copy, so it was a copy paste fail on a, on adding a new secret and our, my canines skills, which is like a, a cool in curses based monitoring tool for your canine or for your Kubernetes cluster. I didn't know how to get to the event that showed that that pod couldn't boot or something. So I didn't find out what I did wrong. Uh, it would have been fast, but it was slow because I didn't know how to find out what went wrong. What went wrong was I had misconfigured it because I didn't copy paste correctly. So that's roughly the process. Now, I don't know what LKE changelog secrets does. These are like the make file commands that do things with Kubernetes. So maybe you can fill that in what happens from there when I type that. Yeah, so when you type that, it basically lists all the secrets that we have in LastPass using the LastPass CLI, and it pipes them to kubectl or kubectl apply. That's it. That's that's all it does. So it goes through all the list of all the secrets, and it basically updates them from LastPass into Kubernetes. And the third command, what it does, it just restarts the app. It does like a rollout. So it's like a blue-green deploy. So what gives me the permissions to be able to tell our Kubernetes cluster to kubectl, you know, new secrets? So first of all, you have your LastPass login. That's what gives you access to the secrets in LastPass. And then you have the kubeconfig. There's another make target, which pulls it down via the Linode CLI. It connects to Linode, so the API it pulls down the um, kubeconfig. It puts it in the right place. And that gives you access to the Kubernetes API or the control plane as it's known. And we need to configure these secrets. We basically connect to the Kubernetes API via kubectl and we just apply them one by one. There we go, Nick. There we go. I love that setup. I love the idea of just having like a Gerhard in the box there. Like you just run the command and get the docs as if he's like sitting right over your shoulder giving you the exact steps to do. Is that something like you just discovered to do? Like, hey, why not have a make command that does literally nothing except echo out a couple lines of text? I think, I think this is uh, the embodiment of dev and ops working really well together. Working together. <laughs> yes. So this is an example of when ops can read dev's mind because we can't understand another one another at a different level. And I kind of know what Jared would appreciate. I think that's something that came from like working for a couple of years and knowing how he thinks and just over time, basically anticipating what he would need. Like Git push, for example, we, we didn't change that. It's really simple because that's what he's always done. Just get pushed to master and then take care of it. Like mm -hmm. that's, that's my contract. Right. Yeah. As soon as you started talking about that, like the first thing I thought of was that one meme picture with like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Dylan from Predator with the handshake explosion. Like you guys are just so yes. synced up perfectly. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, sometimes things aren't so perfect, right? Like fat fingering this, this and that. Uh, so what have you done to kind of plan for disasters or like unexpected events? Like how do you back up your database or, you know, sometimes maybe user uploaded files, things like that? Okay. I'm glad that you ask, are asking about that because that's something that we want to improve, but it's better. So whenever the app gets deployed, we do a backup of the database. There's a container. Um, it's actually, okay. It's a container in um, the pod, which is the changelog app. And the changelog app has a couple of containers. One of them 
is only responsible for keeping all the media files in sync with our S3 backups. So every, I think, 24 hours, it makes sure that everything is synchronized. So it just like does S3 and it just uh, makes sure that all the files are backed up. Same thing for the, for the database. So we have every 24 hours or whenever, the, whenever there is a new deploy, we, we back up the database, we have a full backup, and then we synchronize all the files to S3, all the media files. Okay, so before it deploys, do you do the backup then just in case you run a migration and things go kaput? Exactly, exactly, yeah. Has that ever happened where you had a complication with a migration? No, never in four years. It's kind of interesting too, because it's like, okay, so you do have uh, like zero downtime deploys, right? Like blue-green deploys, but it sounds like you don't have them, or maybe you do. Do you have a load balance where you do like rolling restarts as well? Like, do you have to deal with that situation where you have two versions of the app running at the same time so technically, like, you know, your migrations could get a little bit more complicated because you can't just depend on things like not existing. Like, how do you deal with that type of stuff? So this is where Jared reads my mind. So Dev reads Ops mind, I suppose. And he doesn't write a migration that would <laughs> mess things up for the previous version of the app. Everything is incremental. So we think in incremental steps. And this is at the core of what we do. Even like the improvements, we always like small steps towards better. So we don't make big deletes or big changes or, and because we take small steps, because every single commit gets deployed into production, I think that's the beauty of it. It's like a mindset in that like three lines of code, they go out, 10 lines of code, they go out. So it's very small steps. And I think that is part of the secret why we didn't really have issues around migrations because you always have to think in like small increments. So you can't work on this feature, which is massive for three months and then you push it out and then everything breaks. We don't have that, really. Mm. It's kind of like the old story of the guy who goes to the doctor and he's like, hey, doc, every time I raise my arm up like this, it hurts. And the doctor says, well, if you don't raise your arm up, like when you lay it down, does it hurt? And he goes, no. And he goes, well, just don't raise your arm up like that then. And it's like, it's like don't don't have that problem. And that, we're privileged in that way. Again, it's kind of like small team advantages. We don't have a bunch of people pushing code into master at the same time that all migrate the database in in weird ways we also have a pretty stable database um, it's a production application that was designed in five years ago and receives minor changes right like add a column it's usually additive versus destructive anyways so you're adding a column you're adding a table maybe you're renaming something that's like probably the most destructive thing that we get and so it's just kind of been, in our particular case, not a problem, but I can see where there's more complex apps, bigger teams, uh, immature software where you're not quite sure what it looks like, right? We know what our data pretty much looks like at this point. Maybe we'll add a new section to the website with new database tables there, but that's not going to cause major issues. Yeah. And, and just like a deployment rollout, it's just like part of the platform, like the blue green, we just roll out a new version, update the image. Kubernetes handles this really nicely. We have readiness probes, which make sure that the new version is not put in the service before it's ready to serve traffic. We have healthiness checks on the app. So I think the basics are fairly well set up. And that means that things run smoothly from an operational perspective. And we also have like an understanding and I think an appreciation. And it's just was built over time. And I think we operate at our level. We're not trying to be work for a team of a hundred people or it's just Jared, right? We know that it's like a couple of us and we work 
like that. Right. Yeah, that's a philosophy I try to abide to as well. It's like, well, you're not Google unless you're Google, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, you did mention earlier that uh, you do use things like feature flags. And I really like the idea of just, like you say before, like really small incremental changes to your code. Like you can deploy code, but not actually make it live. So is that how you deal with making things a little bit more safe? You somehow just like tuck those behind feature flags? Like how do you have that set up? I think I was mentioning feature flags as like an example. Do we actually use feature flags? I don't know. Not at the moment. Okay. We have them in our back pocket for some larger things that we're working on. But honestly, 2020, has we've seen more infrastructure changes than application changes. It's been mostly refinements and quality of life improvements on the back end and for our front end users than anything else. I, I couldn't actually think, Adam and I were just talking yesterday about like what we did this year. And it was like a lot of podcasts, a lot of news, et cetera. And it was like, what we do on the platform? I was kind of like, I can't think of a single, single huge feature that we did in 2020. It's all just been like quality of life improvements, you know? So we, ha we have feature flags as a thing that we want to be a part of our process and a part of our toolbox, but we haven't actually used them in any sort of capacity yet. Okay. Gerhard, you mentioned earlier, uh, just before about like readiness probes and things like that. Does Linode also give you any type of alerting and monitoring, or are you just not, not using those features? Like, oh, wow, the cluster needs, you know, some attention because it's at like 90% memory for five minutes. So we do have the alert manager deployed part of the Kube Prometheus stack, but it's the one thing that I did not have time to spend with to configure it properly. So it alerts the right people and stuff like that. We, now that we have um, the Grafana cloud integration, we see more from the perspective of the logs, but we don't have any alerts set up yet. But alerts are only as useful as how are you going to remedy them? For example, one thing which um, we had like an issue with recently, it's um, how a certain VM was like in this weird state where it wasn't quite stopped and it wasn't quite started. And Kubernetes wasn't sure, like, shall I move these pods or shall I not move these pods? Shall I detach the volumes or shall I not detach the volumes? So that's when we, um, for us, we have like pingdom checks and uh, the uptime monitors. So we get notification when there's like an issue on the availability side. And typically what it is, we just delete the VM. We literally like delete the VM, let the system restore itself because we have a good enough system that it knows how to do that. And it's like only these states where we don't quite know when it's failed or not failed when it's problematic. 2021, that's actually one of the things where, where I want to spend more time on, especially since we have all these extra insights. And um, from the logs, the structured logging, which I would like us to enable in the application, PromEx, so that we have more metrics from the application. And now that we have the synthetic monitoring, how about this is all running in Grafana Cloud, how about we configure the alert, uh, alerts from that side of things? So I think we are slowly moving towards making Grafana and the Grafana cloud our single pane of glass where everything is happening. Because let's say that we deploy Prometheus, right? So what if there is an issue with Prometheus? It, should it be a problem that we should worry about or shall we delegate that? So that's something that I'm thinking about in that we would like to have that managed. We'd like to have our alerts managed. And then we, all we have to do is just configure them. Right. And then uh, Jared could get notified when uh, some Cody wrote starts throwing 500s, right? <laughs> that's right although that hasn't happened yet so just... no it's all those exceptions that we're not looking at it goes back to the doctor's you know orders no yeah. bugs please <laughs> right 
So Jared, what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building and I guess to some extent deploying this a little bit, because it sounds like maybe, you know, you're not really in the thick of it on the app side, but you do once in a while do run some deployment commands. Mm -hmm. So my tips and tricks is, you know, team up with people who know what they're doing and are reliable and smart and really, you know, fill the gaps that you need filled. These are things that I'm not very good at. I have old school sysadmin history and tendencies and Gerhard has in some cases dragged me kicking and screaming into the present because I'm just like, why can't we just keep SSHing in and just restart it once a day or, you know, <laughs> just that kind of stuff. It's where I still, my mind goes and I don't, honestly, I don't love this area of what we do. It's, it, I like the end results. I understand how hard it is to get right. I appreciate it, but I don't find joy in some of the things that he finds joy in, in like really building these systems and making sure they're reliable and resilient and, and et cetera. So, you know, compliment yourself with people who have not just differing skills, but also differing interests. And so then you make for good teams. I'm not sure what you're looking for in terms of other tips and tricks, but that's my main one. No, that definitely uh, is very well put. And it's great that you guys have found each other to do this because now you can focus on what you want to focus on. And the end result is a fantastic platform that we can all benefit from. Yeah. One more, th one more thing to add on how I found Gerhardt. So, you know, you look around the industry and you find people who are doing interesting things in that space. So like the way I found him was because he was working on open source in the area and his name was on a repo or on a, you know, on a commit or I can't exactly remember on eDeliver which was a fork of deliver or a sec. I don't remember, but anyways, his name had become prominent around that space. And so that's how we got started was me reaching out and saying, Hey, I'm in that space. I need help in that space. And so maybe on the side of like, it's easy to say, find awesome people, but how do you find them? I look around at what people are doing and then I try to form relationships with people doing awesome stuff. So I think that's a, a tactic for that strategy. And if you want to be somebody who is found as, a awesome team member or part of something bigger than yourself, open source and being involved in public coding, writing, developing, podcasting. These are great ways to make yourself found. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's how I pretty much met you guys, right? It was just stumbled on your repo, looked at some great code. I'm like, huh, cool. Relationship formed. Exactly. Yeah. And from, from, my, from my perspective, it's, it's, I would say something very similar. Um, the first thing, well, one of the core principles is just to be honest, be honest about what you like, what you enjoy, be honest about what you don't want to do and don't do, don't do that. Be honest about, well, I think there's a bit of like soul searching, discovering what you believe in and then find people that believe what you believe, believe in, whether it's laziness or simplicity or whatever it may be, um, just look for those people because they are out there. And it's the communities. We have some great communities. Changelog is one of them. And it's a great example of all the people that do so much amazing work. I mean, I just like I just look at the newsfeed and I can't believe there's so much good stuff happening out there. Like canines is one example. I was so surprised by it. And it's just in the open source, it, it enables us to do things and it makes us want to give back because we received in turn. And then we have those partnership with someone like Linode and there's some great engineers there that would say, hey, let me be honest with you. This thing isn't working very well. 
what's up with it? So just having that sort of like an honest conversation and having people be honest in return, it's just, yeah, so many great things happen because of that. Yep, honesty for sure goes a, a really, really long ways. So guys, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Nick. Hopefully the next one will not be in nine months. It will be in 12 months, right? A year from now. Yes, we're definitely going to have to do the 2021 edition. And uh, But before we wrap this up, uh, do you want to share any links to your personal sites, Twitter, GitHub profiles, anything like that? My personal site is an easy one to remember. It's gerhard.io. Right, you can't forget that. And once you're there, you'll find Twitter and GitHub. I'm Gerhard on, Twitter, on GitHub. I'm not Gerhard on Twitter. So if you know who's Gerhard on Twitter, let him or her reach out to me. So, because I would really like to be Gerhard on Twitter as well, but I try to be Gerhard everywhere. <laughs> I'm pretty much Jared Santo everywhere, but the main thing I do on the internet, at least, is changelog.com. So you can find me there. You can find our podcast, our newsfeed, and all the stuff we've been talking about. Of course, our GitHub, where the code is, probably in your show notes, Nick, but github.com slash the changelog, because they wouldn't let us have changelog. We try to be changelog everywhere, but in some places we're the changelog slash changelog.com is where you'll find the source code. Cool. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop all those into the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.